If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me, we're going to actually primarily be in uh, Psalm 138 for a couple of verses, and then we'll be in 2 Timothy uh, as we look to God's Word to speak to us today. But I want to start with a question, a question to ask you, where do you get your information about what's happening in the world? Where do you go to get your information? Do you go to, like, Fox News because it's fair and balanced? Do you go to the Wall Street Journal? Uh, do you go to ESPN? <laughs> Where do you go? And, and what apps do you have on your phone? Uh, I imagine you probably have some apps on your phone to find out what's happening in the world. And let me ask you the question, can you trust it? I mean, the information that you're getting, can you trust that information? Or is it biased? Is there anything that's not biased? I mean, where do we find out who or what should have the a final authority? Do you have that final authority? Is it inside of you? I mean, you say, well, I'm, I'm going to be the authority in my life to determine who is right, to determine the final word for me to evaluate how life is, or is that authority, is that final word something outside of you? Let me ask it this way. When you're in an argument, what has the final word? Or who has the final word? Not that you guys ever get in arguments. So let's put it in the context of parenting. How do you have the final word, right? And usually you play that card as a parent. Because I said so, there it is right there, right? I'm the parent, I'm the one, boom. Because I said so, thus saith your parent. Final authority. How does that work? <laughs> no talk back, I'm sure. There's like, oh, yes, you're right. God has placed you over me in my life. Oh, yes, my will, my desire is to submit to my mom and to my dad. How does that work out? Uh, maybe if it's a spouse who's arguing, again, let's just talk figuratively here. Who has the final word, the final authority? Or do you start pulling in experts like, well, According to so-and-so, this is the way it should be. Who do you look to to have that final word? What or who will have the ultimate authority? Well, coming out of the Reformation in the 1600s, back in the 1500s, was who will have the final authority? It's clearly God. God is the one who has to have the final authority. And something called sola scriptura, that scripture alone. Now, this is God's word. This is God's authority. And some of you who have been in church a long time are saying, amen. And some of you are saying, I know this to be true. But we have to understand that history wasn't always clearly teaching, even in the church, that this alone is our authority. As a matter of fact, that during the Reformation, one of the things that was being argued that Scripture alone is, is the authority, because at that time, they thought that the authority in the church was God's Word plus the tradition of the church, the tradition, those who have gone before them, plus the teaching of the Pope or the councils. So you had this three-legged stool that would tell you uh, where you found your authority. But that would be challenged through the Reformation. I want to bring you back to an incredibly significant point in church history. Uh, Martin Luther is at the point of this history lesson. The date was April 17th, 
and actually 17 and 18. The year was 1521. And there Luther stood in what was termed as, weirdest term ever, the diet of worms. What is the diet of worms? Did these folks eat worms? No. The diet of worms, a diet is called an a imperial assembly of the Holy Roman Empire in the German city of Worms, or Worms, which had the Emperor Charles V presiding. So this is what I want you to picture. A lot of people in big hats, right? A lot of people with long, long robes, and a lot of people with a lot of titles. And they've all gathered together, and there you have at the epicenter of this meeting of all these religious and not just ecclesiastical leaders, you also had the, the leaders of Germany that were there. And then you have Martin Luther uh, there, and they put all of his writings in front of him, all the things that he wrote about with Jesus and the good news of the gospel. And they said to him, Luther, we want you to take back, we want you to recant Take back all that you have written. We want you to revoke these heresies. So here he was, a lot of people with big hats, powerful people, both in the church and outside the church. One man is standing there, and all of his writings are here, and they said to him this one thing, take it all back. It's all a bunch of heresy. Deny it. And he got so nervous. I mean, wouldn't you? And he starts like, like trembling. He's like, this is all my work. Says, there's so much here. He says, I need another day. Will you give me another day? Let me think about it. This is too much for me to make a quick, hasty decision. So he said, okay, Luther, you got one more day. Come back here, and you got one response. Do you recant? Do you take all of these back? The next day, he shows up. And he stands up. And by the way, man, did he wrestle with the Lord in prayer all night. And he stood up and he says this, unless I'm convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience, conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can't do otherwise. God help me. Amen. For Luther, standing there in the presence of all that authority, he says, my authority isn't the church. And my authority ultimately isn't the government. My authority is God's word alone. This morning, as we continue in what a sermon series called The Pillars of the Faith, the pillars, the good news of the gospel that emerged out of the Reformation. And it was primarily answering the question, although today Luther and the, and the coming out of the Reformation is answering the question, what is primarily your authority? The question that was primarily being answered was this, how do we make ourselves right with God? How do sinners like us get right with a holy God? How is humankind saved before a holy God? And what they came up with, these five pillars, they said, we are made right, we are saved, we are rescued by God's grace alone. Pillar one, through faith 
alone. Pillar number two, in Christ Jesus alone. Pillar number three, according to God's word alone. Today, pillar number four, and we'll end next week, for the glory of God alone. Scripture is so important because of all these pillars, of all the truth, where do we find them from? How do we know these things? We find them from God's word. Now follow the logic of this. If this is erred, if this is wrong, if this is flawed, it doesn't matter what we're trying to dig up and come up with conclusions. Doesn't that make sense? We got to have this be right. True word of God. Trustworthy word of God. Because why? Because this will tell us who God is. This will tell us who we are. This tells us how we are saved. If this isn't right or accurate, it's just a crapshoot. It all depends on us and what we think. God's word, here's the beautiful thing about this. The, this, this pillar, all the other pillars, if this crumbles, everything else will crumble too. But God's word can be trusted. Why? Because it's true. And here's something beautiful. You can't miss it. God's word is not just true for some of us. God's word is true for all of us at all times. We may reject it. We may not believe it. But this is God's word, and it is true. We're going to look at three things this morning as we look to God's word. We're going to see the authoritative word of God. We're going to see the saving word of God. And we're going to see the profitable word of God. This sermon, like every sermon I preach, I'm going to talk to you about the authority of God's word. And I just know that when I start, I can't say it all. And there's so much more. And there's probably questions I won't answer. Or there may be things that I don't get to. But may God add his rich blessing to the preaching of his word. May he come and help us understand what it is um, about his word that is unique to any other word. Let's look at that word. I'm going to read out of the Psalm, Psalm 138, verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 138, a Psalm of David. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praises. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. I love those two combinations of who God is. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Let's turn to 2 Timothy 3. I'm going to pick up in verse 14. Paul is talking to a young pastor named Timothy. He's reminding Timothy about the faith that was passed on to him from his mom and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. And he says this in verse 14 uh, through 17. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God breathed out, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Let us pray.
Oh, Father God, would you come with the power of your spirit and would you speak through a broken sinner like me? Oh, God, I pray that the things that I say that are wrong or merely my opinion, that those things would fall away and be forgotten quickly. That, God, you would give us the ears to hear your voice. That you would give us the minds to understand your word and the hearts that would embrace your truth. That, God, that you would give us feet that would walk in the manner worthy of your name. Oh, Father, come and join us. Come and be teacher for your glory and for our good, we pray. In the matchless name of Jesus, amen. The first thing we can see is this authoritative word. This is the authoritative word of God. It should be our authority. And as Americans, we often, we often boast that we are a country founded on Christian principles, which is pretty much true. And we're a country that, that would follow God's word, which is somewhat true. But we have to go back to even the beginning of one of the greatest minds that helped shape this great country of ours was Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson, man, wow, brilliant. I mean, I just can't believe what he was able to think and to do and the mind that that man had. But when it came to God's word, God's word was not Thomas Jefferson's authority. Thomas Jefferson took his reason and his thought, and he went to God's word, and he edited it. And he says, I don't believe in miracles, so I'll take the miracles of God's word out. I, I don't believe in different things. I'm going to take this out and, and that out. And Thomas Jefferson created what has been known as the Jeffersonian Bible, a Bible that he would say, this is what I believe to be true. I've taken God's word. I am the authority over God's word, and I will be able to interpret what I like, what I don't, and what I throw out. So we got to realize that we are a country that, yes, it founded on Christian principles, but one of our great founding fathers didn't see this as the authoritative word of God. But what does God's word say? It says to us in Psalm 138, 1 and 2, that God has exalted, this is the holy, true God who is, he's exalted above all things, two things. He's exalted his name, and we hear throughout Scripture that his name is holy, that we are to, to keep his name holy. And when we are told the name of Jesus, we're told that name is the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess he's Lord, and every knee will bow to that reality. He has raised above all things his name. That's why one of our Ten Commandments is to keep his name holy. But he is also exalted above all things his word his holy and errant word, his love story to us. And we got to make sure that we bow down to it and that we do not um, lower it because he has exalted above all things. We should not lower God's word. Scripture should always be over us. We are not over scripture. Interesting, if you went to a, uh, a church uh, during uh, the early years of our country's uh, starting, uh, especially during the Puritan times, do you know what the preacher would do? If you go to a church even in town, there will be a pulpit, and there will be a pulpit that the preacher would climb up into, and he would get up over God's people. Why did the pulpit above all of God's people? Because every pastor wants you to look up to him and know that we are greater than you. 
Because we all have big egos. We want to be the one that's always seen. There's probably a lot of truth to that, but they had the rightful, watch this, they had the rightful theology and understanding that God's word should be exalted. And literally in their worship service, they would lift up God's word so they knew what was their authority. They knew what was over them. That was God's word was over us. We are not over scripture. Scripture interprets our life we got to be careful not to pick and choose. God's word is to be the one that we cannot lower. Uh, it's got to be authoritative in my life. So let me ask you a question. Is it authoritative in your life? Is it? Is it something that you pick and choose and maybe you get to some difficult parts that you don't like and say, I don't necessarily agree with this or this seems culturally irrelevant? It's our authority or it's not. Why? Because God's word is living and active. Hear what uh, Hebrews 4.12 says about this. For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joint and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Why is God's word amazingly living and active? Because we saw in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all of scripture is God breathed out, that God's being in this. Now, here's an incredible mystery. God took writers like Paul and Peter and Moses, and he uses all of their gifts and their abilities and their intellect to write God's word. He didn't, like, take their hand and mechanically write it. He used their personality. He used their gifts, their knowledge, but he breathed into them his very being. So as they were writing, they were writing the word of God. Listen, God's breath is powerful and it's living and active. The only way we have life is that God breathed into Adam and he became a living being. God spoke and the cosmos came into existence. God's word still speaks to us. It is living and active. Scripture is scripture that will point us to life. Scripture points us to light. I love Psalm 119, 105 that says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Are we living in dark times? Is your life still marred by some darkness? May God's word light your path. Be a lamp unto your feet. May it bring you life. Why? Because it's not a dull old book. It's an incredible story that's living and active. God's word is the final word. It's a final authority. At the very end of this book, at the book of the very last chapter, in the very last uh, words of the last chapter, he says this. John writes, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecies of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Yikes. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. It's basically saying this. At the end times, Hebrews 1, God's word is God's son spoke to us. God's word is sufficient for us. It's a story that tells us about God. We're not to add anything to it. This makes me have a hard time with some very good moral people um, who started in upstate New York with a fellow by the name of Joseph Smith up near my hometown. He dug 
uh, into some hills, and he found a tablet, and a tablet was a new word. And it was a new word that gave new revelation that told about new things about who God is. And it started a whole denomination. It started a whole movement, a whole cult called the Latter-day Saints. They believed, hey, God's word isn't sufficient. It's not authoritative. They have the Book of Mormon, the, the Book of Pearl of Great Price, and all those are on equal ground with God's word. God's word said, this is it. I've spoken, okay? There's nothing more coming. I will speak to you freshly through the Holy Spirit. You'll find new things out every time you read it. It'll be like every day there's like new fruit, but there's nothing new added. Does that make sense? And don't take away from it. Now, I know you're sitting there saying, well, I don't. I don't take away from God's word. But we have to stop and say, we do. And practically in the way we live our lives, we will wink at certain sins, turn our back toward other things that God says that we shouldn't do or should do. And we often are, like Jefferson, creating our own word. Is it our authority or is it not? Does it speak to us or do we speak to it and try to interpret it? It should be the final word over us. Um, and I, I got to tell you, it's, it, as a pastor, I, I wrestle with this. I live in a time like you in a culture that says that, you know, truth is relative. Truth is true to you and may not be true to me. And for us to believe that there's an authority in God's word, it, it makes us old-fashioned. It makes us stick out like a sore thumb. I can't tell you how many weddings I've done where I'm proclaiming God's word and part of my flesh kind of cringes thinking a bunch of people think I'm crazy saying this stuff. They think I'm nuts that I believe in this. But is this our authority? Is it the authoritative word of God or not? And the beautiful thing about God's word, not only is it living and active, God's word, uh, the eternal word, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. I just don't want you to miss that as well. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen the glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What an amazing word, separate here in the word of God, manifested in the Son of God. Second thing is, is the saving word of God. I love what it says. This will make us wise for salvation. This word makes us wise. It doesn't help us in geometry. If your son or daughter needs help in math, don't want to take them to Deuteronomy and try to figure out math equations. It will not help you with solving the Pythagorean theory. Pythagorean theory. I mess it up at KC Corner. I mess it up again here. It won't help you with those things. It will help you know about salvation. Listen, God's word is not a textbook. If you try to make it a textbook, if you think that this is going to be lined up against Darwinism, it will tell you truth, but it tells us truth in a story. And it uses hyperbole. It uses all kinds of languages. It has poetry. It's beautiful. It's a story. It's a true story. It's a living story. But it's not a textbook. But God's story will tell us God's story from God's perspective. Let me make sure you know this. There's a very narrow perspective from the Bible. It's very narrow-minded. It's God's mind. Then it's going to be that Jesus is the only Savior. Very narrow-minded. It's going to tell us that all men are sinful. It's going to tell us that everybody needs a Savior. It's going to tell us that we all are broken and needy and need help. It's going to tell us about a God who is. And it's going to tell us from God's perspective. But what's it going to do? 
It can tell us about God's salvation. I love what it says in 2 Timothy 3.15. Okay, Timothy, from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. I get this because he had a godly mother and a grandmother. So did I. And from childhood I learned about God's word. And for those of you who have the same story, praise God from that, that reality. Which I love this. He says, which you have become convinced of. Because this is able to make you wise for salvation. The Westminster Confession of Faith will ask the question, what does the Bible principally teach? And if I could ask my kids that, I guarantee it's going on in their head right now. The Bible principally teaches what man is to believe concerning God and what duties God requires of man. There you have it. So what does the Bible teach us? It teaches us that God is holy. It teaches us that God is sovereign. It teaches us that God is just. It teaches us that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And the Bible points to Jesus. It's got one hero, one Savior, one hope. The Bible makes us wise for salvation. What this should do is lead us to the reality is that we need help. And that salvation is through faith in Christ Jesus. There's no other hope. 2 Timothy 3.15 uh, will say this, that the goal of the Bible is for us to believe. I love the way John writes the gospel. I love the way that he writes his epistles. Because John is going to tell us about Jesus, but he's going to be up front with you. He's going to say, hey, listen, I'm telling you this for one reason, that you believe in Jesus. I'm preaching to you for one reason, that you believe in Jesus. This is given to us for one ultimate reason, that you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. That's the point of it. Listen to what John says. The goal of the Bible is for us to believe in Jesus as Savior and to give God glory and join forever. Listen to John 20, verse 31. At the end of John's gospel, he says this. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Lord, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's not given to tell you about geometry. It will tell you about the world, but not everything about our world. Why is it written? So that you will see clearly there is a God and he loves. There's a God and he gives. And his son is our only hope for forgiveness. He's our only hope for life and life abundantly. So we read this, we see ourselves, it becomes our story, and we say, man, I'm going to cling by God's grace and faith to Christ Jesus alone for my salvation. The Bible is God's story of how he loves sinners and how he rescues us through the life, death, and resurrection of his beloved son, Jesus. Don't you love the fact we are not saved by what we do? He didn't give us a Bible just to say, now be moral, now be good, now be better. You want to get to heaven? Here's what you do. That's not what the Bible is. He says, you want to be loved and forgiven? Here's what my son has done. Embrace him. Here's how salvation is won for you. It's not about us. It's ultimately about him. What an incredible story where he is the hero. He's the one who's accomplished it for us. We are saved by God's grace through faith by what God has done in Christ Jesus. And what duty does God require of us? What is that we, what are we, are, how are we supposed to respond? In faith. The duty that God requires of us, yes, he wants us to, to bear good fruits. He wants us to walk in a manner worthy of the name. But ultimately, God's 
duty requirement is for us to believe. To believe in who he is and for what his son has done. How is it with you? Has God's word led you to belief in Jesus as Lord and Savior? If so, what great grace and mercy. And then lastly, God's word is not only the authoritative word, it's not only the saving word, but it's the profitable word of God. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says, The word of God is profitable. Why? It's to teach us. It also says it rebukes us. The word is reproof. That we should read it and say, man, we've messed up. We need a savior. Uh, And not only that, it will say it will correct us. It says teaches us reproof or correction. And that word correction is it's going to straighten us out. God has given us a a word that because of our sin, we're, we're curved, we're broken. But God's word is given to us to straighten us out. He's given us his word to train us. Why? I love this. So that we may be complete. And the word here is proficient. So we may be proficient. So we may be equipped to do the good works of God. God has given us this word so that we believe, so that it will be our authority, but ultimately to train us, that it be profitable. Let me ask you this question as we close. Where is the Bible? Where is God's word in your life? Honestly, is it really your authority? Has it led to salvation in Christ Jesus? And let me ask you this last question. Is God's word profitable to you? If something is profitable, you invest in it, right? If something is profitable, you invest in it. Do you invest in God's word? Do you have a daily prescription of trying to go to God's word because it is useful to us? So much more I want to tell you. It'll come in sermons to come. But let me close with this thought. I, like you, live in a time where God's word is often maligned. People will say, ah, it's a bunch of old stories and it's filled with errors. And you know what? We can't really trust it. But I want to say, have you ever read it? I mean, it absolutely blows me away that one book uh, that has 66 books that primarily written in two different languages over thousands of years could tell one amazing story. And I want you to know, I'm not a Hebrew scholar or a Greek scholar, but I studied Hebrew and Greek. And I try to look at God's word through the original languages. And I want you to know that by God's grace, several years ago, 25, maybe 30 years ago, I decided I'm going to read it every year. And that's going to be a part of my life, is I'm going to buy a new Bible, and I'm going to read it. And I'm telling you what, the word of God is absolutely beautiful and amazing and true and glorious. Are there parts of it that I scratch my head and say, what was that all about? Absolutely. Is there parts that are still a mystery to me? Uh Uh-huh. But do I know that Jesus loves me? This I know. Why? Because that Bible has told me so. And do I know that I'm a sinner in desperate need of grace? Yes, because that Bible has told me so. Do I know about a God who's merciful and gracious and and long-suffering? Yes, because that Bible has told me so. I mean, there's times I've read it and I've wept. I just can't believe how much God has loved me. And there's times I've read it and I thought, man, I'm guilty as charged. I, I, I read about the Israelites and I'm confessing my sins, seeing their sins. Because the story is true for all of us when the Holy Spirit is inside of us and allows us to see it. How is it with you? Are you investing in it? Is it profitable to you? Dig in. 
Man, is it amazing. May we be a church that always finds it authoritative. May we be a church that always points to others to see it, that it's our way to salvation. And may we be a church that profits from its teaching and preaching. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that our authority is not found in your word and other places equally. We thank you that your authority is not found in this church or in this pastor, that the authority comes from you and your God-breathed word. God, forgive us for how flippantly we treat it. Forgive us for, for how we stand over it like our founding father Jefferson has. Maybe we're not as audacious and rip pages out and cross things out. But God, the truth is, we live our lives as if it weren't true many times. We live our lives as if we are the ones who determine truth. God, humble us. May King's Chapel be a place that lives on the authority of God's word, even when it's not popular, even when it hurts. Because why? It'll always drive us to Jesus, and it'll always be profitable for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.